Um, so the band uh, has been so kind to be voluntold to uh, bring every adult in here a rock. Or if you are a child and receives a rock, that is okay too, just don't throw it. Now if you are an adult who is childish, don't throw it. Here are some rules with the rocks. They are not your opportunity to judge the sermon, whether it is good or bad. What I mean is don't throw it at me. And I don't know, I've seen some of y'all's, some of y'all's athletic ability. I'm not real worried. Oh, no, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm, I'm a, here's, here's the real rules with the sermon in that rock. You are not allowed to set it down. Okay, so all of you who have already put it on the floor or put it in your seat or given it to your spouse or put it in your wife's purse, pick it back up. Now, here is the rule. I know some of y'all are trying to take notes. Keep the rock in your hand. I know you're trying to flip through, through your Bible. Um, I know that you're trying to hold hands with your spouse and be cute, uh, and you only ever do it at church or in the car, but keep the rock in your hand. Do not put your rock down. We're starting this series called Clickbait. Oh, you know what? I should have a rock. If I'm going to ask you to do it, I should also have a rock. Look, I'm holding one. <laughs> okay, I'll use one of your soft rocks, I guess. <laughs> uh, so we've been doing this series called Clickbait. And the idea of this sermon is that um, through... Um, Man, I left my Bible somewhere, too. Y'all, who laughed at me? I got a rock, too, homie. No, I'm just kidding. There's somebody's Bible. Oh, that is my Bible. All right, sorry. Let's, let's back up. All right, here we go. We started this series called Clickbait. I'm just keeping score of how many people I can get to walk up on the stage this morning. Um, we, do, we were doing this series called Clickbait, and the idea behind it is that... Um, and the internet, you're, you're following on Facebook, you're going on Facebook, and then all of a sudden you see a link that says uh, the 14th most, 14 most beautiful koalas you've ever seen. And then you click on it, and it's just like people at Halloween parties, right, that are dressed as koalas or something. Like the idea of clickbait is you click on a link, right, and then when, when you open it up, it gives you something else than what the link has promised you. We stopped our series at the beginning of the year, went through John chapter 1 through John chapter 6 because it was really a get-to-know-you time with Jesus. It was really an opportunity for people to, um, to, to start to follow, to see him. His miracles were present, like he was doing some really awesome things. But then in John at the end of John 6, it gets tough. So we picked up a series in John chapter 7 to 11 to talk about really what it means to follow Jesus and the and really, we can't give in to clickbait, to the things that the world offers us that Jesus just says he's so much better than those things. So far through the book of John, we've seen Jesus interact with people who are on the margin of society. We've seen Jesus engage the lowly fishermen. We've seen him defend the poor. We've seen him talk and prophesy to a Samaritan woman. We've seen him heal the sick, talk to a paralyzed man, teach the spiritually anemic, all while he has 12 disciples 
who are representatives of the socially marginalized, they're following him. He picked 12 nobodies of, of really no gain. Acts calls them unschooled, ordinary men. And he says, you guys follow me. Jesus' interest from the beginning of the book of John is not completely political, but Jesus' role so far has been to make the kingdom of heaven known. In Luke 4, he says it like this. His mission is to preach good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, to recover sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I don't know, maybe some of you this morning need to be released from your prison. You need freedom. Maybe some of us need to recover our sight as we once were blind, then we saw, but now we're kind of going back to our blindness. Maybe you feel oppressed and you need to be released. Well, that was the mission of Jesus. Jesus has come to, re to represent a religion that the Pharisees, like his arch nemesis, if there is one in the Bible, they're always the pain in Jesus' side. The Pharisees and the Jews, they, they stand against everything that it seems like Jesus stands for. Jesus is representing a religion that encompasses all walks of life. It includes those who have been excluded and to love those who have been unloved publicly and privately. And this morning, the passage we're going to look at is probably one of the best examples of the contrast between Jesus' role in bringing spiritual life to God and what we call religion. Go ahead and find in your Bible John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And for a moment, I want to talk about John 8. We have been a church for two years, a little bit over two years, right? Uh, we celebrated our second birthday when we moved into here in March. Our very first Sunday ever, we preached this passage we're going to talk about. So some of you are like, man, this, this sounds familiar. John 8, you're right. And we use that message to talk about the type of love that we're going to give, kind of who we're going to be in Jacksonville. Last year, we preached this same passage again because we wanted to reemphasize the type of church we are, the type of lovers we are as a church, the type of people we're going to love and the type of people we're going to defend. Here we are, the third year in a row, and we're going to preach this. Hey, my hope is that in year four, in year five, six, seven, and in year 33, we will preach this passage once a year because this scripture of all the stories of Jesus, I really think encompass who we are. Um, you can follow along with Restore Church on the Version app. You can follow along with us on, um, if you open up the Restore Church app and click the Bible. So not the bulletin, but the Bible. You can follow us along. If you have your Bible with you, you're going to need to see John 8. We're not going to have it on the screen. You're going to need to see John 8. We have some volunteers who would love to pass out some Bibles to you. Um, you can use that, have that, let that be your Bible, take it home and read it. Uh, but we're going to be in John 8. Uh, remember, don't put your rock down. Okay? Don't, don't do this either. Okay? That doesn't count. Rock. John chapter 8. Um, now, all right, so you'll see when you open it up, we need, to address, um, we need to address something. When you open up and you see John chapter 8, you might see some little words above it. You, John chapter 8 might start in a bracket for you. 
Does it look like that in, in yours? If you're looking on your phone, uh, it might not because it's, it starts in John uh, 7, verse 53. But it says something like this. The earliest manuscripts and many other witness, uh, ancient witnesses do not have this. Okay, so let's back up just a, just a second. The New Testament, originally, the original language was Greek, not English and not King James. And so what we had to do, what people had to do, was get uh, it from Greek into uh, English. And so they rely on the manuscripts that exist the most. They also rely on the manuscripts that exist the earliest. And they weigh them out. If there are differences, they weigh them out to see, all right, what was it pre-existing? Was it in the earliest ones? And how common because the first century was, in nature, a very oral tradition. They did a lot of teachings. But when John wrote down the Gospel of John, the story of Jesus, instead of passing it along from town to town, they wanted to write this down and pass it along as a story. Okay? And so it was the, the job of the priests and the scribes uh, and the early church leaders to write down the Gospel and copy it. Now, somewhere in the mix of all of that, maybe probably around the second century or so, this story started to show up. They're like, we don't know what to do with this. It's not in that one, but it's in that one. It's not in the one that came from, I don't know, it's not in the, 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 the manuscript that came from Wilmington, but it is the one that came down to us from Newburn. What do we do with this, this, this story? Now, I just want to tell you what people who are smarter than me have come up with. A lot of, in Christendom, so, so Christian leaders and, and, um, and theologians, none of them refute that this is inspired, that it does belong in the, in the Bible. I want to tell you that because you should have confidence when you read this that it, it has the same weight as John 3.16, all right? But I also want to tell you that there are some theologians who believe that this belongs in, in Matthew or that it belongs in Luke. Either way, when we read this story together, you're going to see that it depicts the very nature of God. It talks about the love of Jesus, and it really looks like a story that, Jesus, uh, re that, that resembles Jesus. All right? So I want to say this to say we believe that this is real. That, that the story we're going to read is completely accurate, completely true, and it belongs in our Bible. I don't want you to look at that part and be like, oh, this dude, he's preaching things that don't even belong here. It does. Okay, do you still have your rock? Good. Hold on to it. Let's read John chapter, well, it's like verse seven, chapter 7, verse 53, but we're going to read to John 8, verse 2. It says, then each went to his own home. This was after the festival of the booths that we read about last week. But Jesus, he went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. John 8 begins a lot like John chapter 7. Jesus is in what we call self-preservation mode. Remember in John 7, Jesus didn't want to go down to Jerusalem to the, to the Feast of Booths, for fear that the, the Jews were going to kill him. I mean, that was their mission from chapter 5 is to kill Jesus. And, and Jesus was right. 
He went down to, he went down in chapter 7, he started to teach, and then they tried to kill him. So Jesus begins to teach publicly, but his fear, again in, in chapter 7, is incited, and the Jews and the Pharisees, they get riled up, they begin a riot, they chase him, they chase him out of town. So Jesus, in the cover of dawn, he comes back and he starts to teach here in chapter 8. You're going to have to remember a while back when we were doing our first study in John. But do you remember in John chapter 3 when Nicodemus comes to Jesus? This Pharisee, this religious leader, the people, uh, someone that the people would look, look up to. He comes to Jesus in the cover of night. Now we talked about a couple reasons why he might do that, embarrassment or shame. But one of the main reasons that people would come to Jesus while it was dark is for access. I mean, we see that the crowds start to gather around Jesus all the time, but, but at, at night and early morning, they don't. And so a lot of the people who really want access to Jesus would come to him uh, late at night. If Jesus starts to teach in the middle of the day, he's going to gain attention. He might get arrested and eventually killed. And if you're the Jews or the Pharisees, and you want Jesus, listen, if you're the Jews and you're the Pharisees, you want Jesus out, like you want to kill this dude, you want him done, right? What's the best way to discredit Jesus? Privately, at night? No, it's going to be publicly, like in the middle of everyone. You're going to put him to the test, and we're going to see in a second, they're going to ask him, they're going to use scripture that everyone in the crowd would know. They're going to give him a pop quiz right in the middle of his teachings. And if he fails, he's dead. They will kill him right away. And they, ha they will be uh, justified in doing so. Do you still have your rock? Good, hold on to it, don't put it down. Look at verses three to six. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and they said to Jesus, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? They were using this question. Check this out. We learned something here. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing Jesus. Now, we got to ask this question here. How did they catch her in the act of adultery? And some believe that it's a rumor. And through questioning and interrogation and intimidation, the religious people, they, they get her to confess her sin. On the other hand, there are quite a few people who believe that this was a trap. Um, let's see, the, the word that says um, in the act, verse 3, uh, the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery, in the act. The Greek word, uh, what it really means is in the act, if you catch what I'm saying. They believe that they set up, these religious people set up a, a scheme, a trap to catch her in the act. And so then they drag this woman. Now, you got to ask this question, even in a culture that really oppressed women, where's the fella? I mean, if it was in the act, then they're both guilty, right? Whatever the situation is, there's no doubt that in the minds of the Pharisees, the woman and the, in the minds of the Pharisees, in the minds of the woman and in the mind of the crowd around, she is guilty. 
There's no doubting it. And then they throw her and stand her before the group. Can you imagine the embarrassment and the shame that she must have? They not only want to trick Jesus into making a huge mistake with the law of Moses, but they also want to shame this woman in front of everyone to exemplify their power and warn everyone. They remind Jesus. They remind him what the law says. But Jesus knows what the law says. Everyone here knows what the law says. The people that Jesus is teaching, they know what the law says. The woman standing on trial, she knows what the law says. And everyone knows what the punishment is. Everyone knows that the punishment should be that they hurl stones at this woman until finally she stops breathing. And everyone who is present is on the edge of their seat waiting to hear what Jesus says because they're either going to, one, see a woman be stoned to death in the presence of everyone, or secondly, they're going to see someone stand up to the Pharisees, maybe blaspheme, and he's going to die too. What's going to happen? Do you still have your rock? Good. Hold on to it. Don't set it down. Look at verse 6. But Jesus, he bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What? Every time I read this, I'm like, hold on, man. There's a woman whose life is in the balance of your, your answer. And Jesus is drawing stick figures in the sand. You know what I'm saying? Like he gathers some up, maybe starts to build the resemblance of a sand castle. It's like... Peter, can you remind Jesus to get it together right now? We got something going on. Look at verse 7 to 8. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and then he said to them, If any one of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Anybody have this tattoo? Oh, okay. Um, verse 8 says this. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus, come on, man. It's like, got to finish. He stands up and he says, hey, enough with the questions. If you're without sin, go ahead. Throw the stone. And he goes back to finish the, the hair on the dog that he didn't quite finish in his drawing. Pharisees just keep pushing. They just keep going. They won't stop asking questions. Their desire is to kill Jesus. Um... And just like the teacher that's grilling her students for the homework that they didn't complete, it seems like the pressure is all on Jesus. The Pharisees think for sure that they have Jesus on the ropes and their plan will absolutely work. And just as they're about to turn to the crown and give them the real teaching, Jesus straightens up, he stands up and he speaks. And just as the Pharisees were to begin drilling this guilt-ridden woman with stones, Jesus comes to her defense. If anyone is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. What? You know what? It doesn't say that in the law of Moses, Jesus. Some nerd is in the background flipping through the Torah to find out where this verse is. They're checking the back of their Bible for the concordance to see exactly where this aligns with their theological background. And those people would keep looking and keep looking and keep looking because 
that's not a verse in their law. But the Pharisees can't help but to start to contemplate their own sin. Jesus stoops down back to continue to write on the ground as if to say, like Kermit the Frog, that's none of my business. <laughs> Just, this is fun. What do you think Jesus is writing in the sand? You think he starts to write the names of the Pharisees one by one? Maybe. We've got to be careful because we don't really know, but maybe he does. Or do you think he might start writing the scripture where they're citing the law of Moses from? What if Jesus starts to write down specific sins that the Pharisees might have struggled with? Pride, greed, lust, sexual immorality, lying. It was the Pharisees who put Jesus on trial, but immediately they are the ones who are convicted. Do you still have your rock? Good. Hold on to it. Hold on to it because this is the rock that has you standing shameful and sinful. The rock that represents in its rigidity as you rub it, every shortcoming that's in your life. It represents the hard times that our sin puts us through. Maybe you're going through that right now. The rock that you're holding, it's hard for you to do anything productive with it in your hand. I know I saw some of you where you're like, how am I going to take notes? And then your neighbor's like, there's nothing he's going to say that's worth writing down, so you're good. <laughs> so you're like, how am I going to flip through the Bible? What if I have to pee? You know, like, what am I supposed to do with this rock? It's hard to do anything productive when you're gripping this rock. This rock represents the sin that wraps us up so quickly as soon as we leave here. It's the one that we run back to regularly to pick up. This rock shows how hard our hearts have become toward others, toward our family members, toward our children because of sin. And they represent how the healing process is next to impossible. These rocks, they keep us from loving, they keep us from caring, they keep us from being compassionate, they keep us from being forgiving. And over time, I've gathered quite a collection of these rocks. How about you? We pick them up every chance we get and we refuse to let them, to put them down. The rocks might re represent resentment toward a spouse. It might resent hate or represent hate towards somebody. It might represent lust that you're keeping hidden. It might represent laziness that you can't shake. It might represent a quick temper that you don't want to exude, but you do it every time. It might represent gluttony and a lack of self-control. It might represent gossip. It might represent uh, slander. But this rock is representing something in your life. Are you, you still have your rock. You might want to squeeze it a little bit. Because we've continued to pick up these rocks and pick up our rocks and pick up our rocks until eventually our hands are full. And what happens when our hands are full is exactly what happens to the Pharisees in this story. We, we have to find somewhere to put our rocks down. 
We've got to find somewhere to display some of these rocks because we just can't figure out how to set them down. And unfortunately, too often, we as Christians and Christ followers, we don't unload them in the right place. We unload them on somebody else. We, uh, we unload them on a daughter who's hurt you beyond comparison. We unload our rocks onto her to make sure she knows where she's not welcome and the hurt that she's put your family through. Maybe we unload our rocks on a family member who continues to put you through hell. Through your finances, inconvenience, maybe they slander your name. Let's drop, let's drop all of our rocks on them and make sure that they feel the same pain that you do. That's a good place to put your rocks. How about the husband who said he loved you, but, after year, but years after the relationship is over, he still continues to hurt you. Maybe he's using your children as a pawn to get back at you. Or maybe not. Maybe he's just moving on with his life. He's found somebody else. But that rock that you, you got to unload it on him because it still hurts. Maybe there's someone out there who's crushing your reputation on purpose and you grab, and, and you grab your rocks and you want to unload it on them and have everyone look at how bad they're treating you. Maybe it's the people in your life who, for whatever reason, have it out to make your life miserable. The list goes on and on and on on the places that we try to take our rocks and unload them up. We've, we've picked up rocks from our own lives and we're, we're running out of room in our hands to store them. So our natural reaction is to wait for someone to hurt us and then we can unload all our rocks onto them and it makes us feel better about what we've been carrying and then we can just go back to starting all over. Do you know what the opposite of carrying our rocks looks like? The opposite of that is forgiveness. Look, people hurt. People hurt bad, especially when you love them. And the danger of building relationships with people is that the tendency in people is to look out for number one and look out for ourselves. And in the process, we get hurt. And forgiveness has got to be one of the, in the Christian faith, has got to be one of the hardest pills to swallow, especially when you've been hurt bad. It's not an easy thing to do, and it doesn't come without reservation. The hardest part about forgiveness, I think, is knowing how to forgive. For me, also, sometimes it's the desire to want to forgive. You know what I'm saying? Sometimes holding a grudge is just much easier. It makes us feel better. We've got one up. But that's not what Christ has called us to. I've not mastered the art of forgiveness, art. I say art because it's not a science. I've not mastered the art of forgiveness. I'd imagine you haven't either. And so I just wanna give you three quick suggestions here at the end of the sermon that might help you. You still have your rock. As we go through these three suggestions, I want you to grab it just a little bit tighter. Here's the first one. The first suggestion is prayer. This is the very principle that Jesus used for forgiveness from the very beginning. The disciples asked Jesus how to pray in Matthew chapter 9, and Jesus gives them the, what is the model prayer. But do you remember one of the most important parts in it? He shows the, the disciples to pray for their needs, to honor God, but he also prays 
not only for their own forgiveness, but the ability to forgive others who sinned, excuse me, who sinned against them. There's only one person in this world who knows how to truly forgive, and that's God. And he has sinned against over and over and over, especially by the people who say they love him. <laughs> you and I, man, oh, I know you've been hurt. Like, you've got a life, right? And, and you've got a past. And some people have hurt you beyond recognition. No one has hurt you as bad as you've hurt God. And when we talk about forgiveness, we've got to rely on God. Why wouldn't we go to the one who knows how to do it? When we need our car fixed, we go to a mechanic or YouTube. When we need our air conditioning fixed, we don't even bother. We just call the HVAC guy. You know, like we go to the, those who know how to do it. Why don't we go to God and ask him, hey, who do you need to forgive? Maybe the first step is prayer. Here's a second one. Y'all, this is so important in your journey to forgiveness is forgiving does not mean forgetting. Now, there's a passage in Psalm, or uh, there's a passage, oh, I should be a better preacher. There's a passage somewhere in the Bible. <laughs> it's there, I, I believe it. It means forgiving, uh, that, that Jesus, or that God throws our sins into the bottom of the sea to be forgotten. I want to tell you, forgiving does not mean forgetting. And God has forgotten yours. But man, I, I'm going to try to encourage you. We don't, we can forget. How about this? This is theologically sound. We can do our best to forget the sin, but we don't have to forget the hurt. Please, for your sake and mine, never say forgive and forget. Because I've seen people who've forgiven and forgotten and just get hurt over and over and over. And to forgive someone who has hurt you repeatedly is one thing, but to forget and to allow them to do it over and over and over is completely another. Forgiveness is not a sign of weakness. It's a sign of strength. It's a sign of maturity. In some situations, it calls you to forgive and then cut, the, cut out the relationship because it's hurting you spiritually, physically, emotionally. Forgiveness is a huge step in your spiritual walk, but don't allow someone to continue stacking their rocks on you. But if you're, if you're going to start unloading your rocks in the correct place, we've got to forgive others, but it doesn't mean forgetting. Here's the last thing. We'll finish with this one. Always remember that you too have been forgiving. Forgiven. Remember that you also have been forgiven. Look at the last verses of, of this section. John chapter 8, verses 9 through 11. Uh, you still have your rock? Okay, don't set it down. Keep holding it. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, alone with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she asked. Then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, Now go and leave your life of sin. Standing alone. Left alone is the sinner and the Savior. It's just the two of them. 
The Pharisees brought this woman to be ashamed in front of everyone, but instead it's them who walk away with their tails tucked between their legs, embarrassed. This woman was supposed to be left dead and the Pharisees left standing, but instead it is the Pharisees who walk away lifeless while scripture records that they all left until only Jesus was with the woman. I imagine that the men are walking away, first the wise, then the young. I imagine that as they're walking away, they're realizing their shortcomings as they read maybe the verses in the sand or their names in the sand or their sin in the sand. And as one by one, they begin to drop their rocks. I want you to hold on to yours. C.S. Lewis says this, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This morning, we're going to finish our sermon um, with uh, a little bit different. We're going to do communion by itself this morning. Um, I'm going to read a couple of verses out of uh, Isaiah, but do you realize the inexcusable that's been forgiven in you? Some of you do. Some of you have come from a, just a radical, crazy, transform, transformed life from your past to now. But I got to tell you, sometimes as a Christ follower and been doing it for a couple years and, and, and been preaching uh, as a professional Christian, right? <laughs> uh, sometimes I like to take my rocks and throw them onto other people because it's easier that way. Sometimes I take my rocks and, and just toss them your way. But the one part that I, I forget is, man, the depth of what has been forgiven in my own life. The, the shame, the, 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 the guilt that I have. Christ died for that. But I'd rather hold on to my rock because it makes me feel better. And I'd rather throw them at you when you offend me. Because that really makes me feel better. Hey, I want you to grab your rock. And I want you to close your eyes. Because this isn't about anybody else. This moment is not about your spouse or your children. It's not about your coworkers. It's not even about the person you need to forgive right now. It's about you. I want you to hold that rock. Maybe it's with one hand, maybe it's with two, but I want you to really grip it. Feel its edges and the pain that it could potentially cause in your life. Maybe it represents your hard heart. Now I'm going to read some verses from Isaiah. And I want you to realize the depth that Jesus had to go through to forgive us. Surely he took up our infirmities and he carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And our only way of being healed came from his wounds. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
I'm squeezing my rock pretty tight. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. And like a lamb to a slaughter, as a sheep before her shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? And he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and he will be satisfied. And by his judgment, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the sinner. You can open your eyes now and I just think of a Jesus who's perfect but was crushed in my place. It was wounded for me. I just think of the pain that I, that I, I caused The only way for me to be healed was his wounds. You almost put yourself in the scene as Jesus is getting whipped and and, and the crowns on his head and the nails that are driven into his hands and his feet and you just want to like be there screaming, no, stop. Not because of me. But the Christ follower grabs this rock and he says, Thank you, Lord, that you did this for me. Here's what we do. Every week we recognize the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But you cannot, you cannot keep carrying these rocks around with you. Like if you're going to embrace the freedom that the the cross has to offer, you've got to unload them in the right spot. And that spot is at the cross of Jesus. You cannot pick up communion with a rock in your hand. What I'm going to ask you to do this morning is I want you to drop your rock at each communion station. When you get up to remember the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus, look, you can't carry a burden. You can't carry a grudge. and acknowledge the cross. What is this representing for you? It's representing how bad someone's hurt you and you need to forgive. Maybe it's at the cross you need to leave this rock. Maybe it's me. Maybe I've hurt you in some way. Don't throw this at me. Just lay it in the basket before you acknowledge the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Maybe it's your own life. Maybe it's the sin in your own life that you're tired of carrying around and it's time to put it at the feet of Jesus. 
hey, these crackers represent Jesus' body that I just read about. And the, and the juice represents his blood that I just read about. And I think for us to fully embrace that, we've got to leave our rocks at the cross. So when you get up to take communion, why don't you sit there? Maybe you're not ready. Uh, maybe you're not ready to, to leave your rock. You've you got to decide what you want to do. Maybe you're not a Christ follower. Well, I'd say this is the perfect time to unload a rock, your rocks. But maybe you don't want to participate in communion, and, and that's okay. Maybe this whole thing is weird to you, and you're like, this is a silly game, and I'm going to put this rock down. That's fine, too. But for those of you who want to take this serious and want to embrace what Christ can do in your life through forgiveness, uh, let's take our rocks and drop them in that basket. I just want to tell you one quick story. About six months ago, maybe it was a little bit longer than that, um, and I, I got hurt really bad. It, it happens. Like, we say that all the time. It happens. We lay ourselves out there. We love people. We get hurt. All right, it's cool. It's not cool, but it happens. And I held that grudge for a long time, every day of it. I vowed if I ever saw him, I would tell him. If he ever messaged me, I would ignore it. Ugh. <laughs> um, that's just no way. And Christ moved in my life this week. And he's like, dude, you got to take the first step. And I got to tell you, it has been one of the most freeing steps in my relationship with Jesus that I've ever taken. Hey, uh, if, if you've done this with us every store, if you're ready to unload your rock in the right place, if you're ready to get rid of your sin and your grudges and embrace the cross of Jesus, let's take communion together. If you've done this with us, done this with us at Restore, would you lead the way so our guests uh, can follow you? Let's do that now.